until the moment, and then we'll turn around and acknowledge you. Are you, are you running this event? I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope so. Far to cash it. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're very welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Paul Johnston. I'm an Edinburgh crime novelist. What I'm doing up here with two Glaswegians, I'm not too clear. And this is an event, strangely enough, in the Scottish crime fiction strand. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Uh, I'll introduce our authors. They will read, present for about 10 minutes each. After that, I will attempt to give them the third degree, probably a hopeless task. Uh, then you will have the opportunity to do the same thing. We have a roving mic. Just stick your hand up. Uh, it will come to you. Keep the mic close to your mouth. And the question is short and not too abusive. Uh, there'll be a signing after it in the main bookstore. I'll remind you of that. And mobile telephones, kindly turn them off or you will be shot. <laughs> On my immediate right, <laughs> uh, members of the panel hung, drawn, and <laughs> disemboweled or whatever. Uh, right on my immediate right is Alex Gray, who was born and grew up in Glasgow. She studied English and philosophy at the University of Strathclyde, thus proving how well-educated crime writers are. And she subsequently trained as a secondary school teacher of English. She won several writing awards before the publication of her first novel. Uh, her crime novels Pitch Black and The Riverman were critical and popular successes. According to the Daily Mail, she brings Glasgow to life in the same way Ian Rankin evokes Edinburgh. Ian Rankin? Mm. Uh, she's here to talk about her latest novel, which is the sixth in her series featuring DCI William Lorimer and subtly titled Glasgow Kiss. To my uh, further right is Denise Miner, who's also from Glasgow. Glasgow, according to the press release, her family moved 21 times in 18 years. Unless well, obviously we're drug dealers or something. Um, <laughs> from Paris to The Hague to London to Norway to Scotland, not necessarily in that order. She won the debut dagger for her novel Garnet Hill. Followed that with six more highly successful books, including Sanctum and The Dead House, or The da Dead Hour, even. Dead House, that's a good title. That's a good title. <laughs> <laughs> According to the Daily Express, she's one of the finest crime writers of her generation. She also writes short stories, comics, plays, and contributes to TV and radio, and thus is obviously far too talented to be a crime writer. She's here to talk about her new novel, Still Midnight. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex Gray and Denise Miner. Because of the fact that Denise arrived approximately one minute ago, we haven't actually decided who's going first, or have we? Did you we decide? Have. Oh, we have. Alex is going first. Right. Alex, please go ahead. Thanks very much, Paul. Um, Glasgow Kiss, which is my latest novel, is set in a world that's fairly familiar to me. Um, it's actually a, a fictional uh, Glasgow secondary school. And uh, I decided that it was time for DCI William Lorimer's other half, Maggie, to have a bit more to the fore. She's a secondary English teacher, which is what I used to do. Um, so that was actually quite a nice thing to be able to research, go back to schools. And um, when I was doing readings in schools, I'd actually be in between times in staff rooms and down corridors and making wee notes. So uh, the fictional school is probably based on some real schools that I've been to in the last few years. Um, Glasgow Kiss. You all know what a Glasgow Kiss is, don't you? Yeah. Um, it's actually a play on words, and I'm going to read two wee excerpts. One is a prologue, which shows you one sort of kiss, and the other one involves one of Maggie's pupils, a young chap called Kyle Kerrigan. And just to give you a little bit of background before I do the two readings, 
um, Kyle is just coming into his fourth year. It's actually the reading that I'm doing um, is set exactly this time of year because school has just gone back for the new session. And Kyle's just gone into fourth year. He's a very keen and very good boxer at the local boxing club, the Argo Centre in Drumchapel, which is a real place. Um, but his father is an ex-con, he's just out of Berliny, and home life is pretty hellish, to be honest. Right, the first bit is the prologue. Her lips were still warm when he kissed them, petal soft, unyielding. It was like kissing a child's lips at bedtime. He could remember that sensation, recalling vividly how the drowsy breath exhaled in a tiny shudder. But the girl made no response, even when he let his finger run across her cheek, down to the corner of her mouth. He could still see traces of pink gloss smeared over the tiny ridges that crossed her parted lips, smell her familiar scent, hands cupped across his nostrils. He breathed in the sweetness mingling with his own sweat. The sun filtered through the leaves, warming his back, filling him with a deep sense of peace, as if the world understood his longings and had colluded to bring about this ultimate satisfaction. A kiss, just one kiss, that was all he'd ever wanted, all he'd ever desired. When he finally looked into her eyes, wide with horror, he had to look away. He turned, handed his mouth to stop the sound coming out, shaking his head in disbelief. Looking at these eyes spoiled everything. Now he was angry with her again. She would have to be punished for what she was doing to him. A dog barking in the distance made him stand up, alert, knowing there was little time to lose. With a final glance at the shallow grave, sunlight dappled under a canopy of trees, he wiped his hands on a tussock of grass, smoothed down the creases in his jeans and walked further into the woods, his footfall silent on the soft earth. <coughs> now, Kyle has gone back to school and if anybody here in the audience is a school teacher, you'll know that despite the fact that you're given a timetable, one day is never predictable. Um, you might end up having what's called a please take. You might have to cover for somebody else's classes. No two days in teaching are the same. And Kyle has gone back to school and he's gone into a maths class to discover that his maths teacher's away. The please take's done by an, an, another English teacher, so he's been asked to write an essay. And the essay is on the best thing that happened to you during the summer holidays. You know, fairly cliched, isn't it? <laughs> However, the best thing that happened to Kyle during the summer holidays was that he had a really, really good boxing match with an older guy in the boxing club he belongs to. Um, not for him, the wonderful summer holidays of his friends, because he doesn't get summer holidays. His dad's just out the jail. So picture the evening where he's actually trying to finish this essay as a bit of homework. And his dad just comes in. What are you doing? Dad had pulled his daughter away before Kyle even realised he was in the room. It's homework. I have to finish it for the morrow, he replied, willing his dad to hand back the blue-covered daughter. It was still in pristine condition, with just his name and English section in the front. By Christmas, it would probably be covered in doodles and graffiti 
like everyone else's. But for now, it was clean and fresh, and Kyle didn't want his dad to muck it up. Can I have it back? He muttered. No yet. Won't you see what you're doing? I'm no having any snotty teacher tell me I didn't take an interest, he sneered. Kyle's heart sank. His father had never attended any of Muir Park's parents' evenings in his life. But the boy remembered how his year teacher, Mrs Lorimer, had pointedly reminded him about the one coming up this term. Kyle's face had been bruised enough lately, the old man taking his temper out on his youngest son. He'd not be letting on about a parents' night to da, that was for sure. Kyle shuddered to think of Tam Kerrigan sitting with his teachers, glowering at them, inwardly sneering at their correct pronunciation. Mrs Lorimer meant well enough, he knew, and was simply doing her job, but most of the teachers didn't have a clue what, what really went on nowadays in the Kerrigan household. Only Finnegan and P.E. seemed to understand Kyle and the kind of home life he was now leading. So Kyle held his tongue and waited for his father's reaction. The old man's lips were moving as he read the couple of paragraphs Kyle had managed to write so far, his finger tracing each line. Old man Kerrigan's education must have been pretty patchy, Kyle thought suddenly, and he'd never taken any opportunity to try to improve himself in the jail, had he? All his stories about the Bar L were big man stuff, if you accepted half of it, wheeling and dealing with the Glasgow gangsters who had gained a notoriety that the likes of Kerrigan aspired to. That was the only kind of education his father had gained. What's this? Who was you fighting? How did I not hear about it if it was that special, eh? No telling your old man what you're up to. How's that then? The swipe came before Kyle had time to duck, a hard blow catching him just below his right eye. We naff. His da threw the jotter on the floor and shambled off, cursing as he went. Kyle caught the tail end of his muttering as he disappeared down the hall. No bloody son of mine. Sitting on the edge of his bed, one hand against the stinging pain, Kyle trembled, hearing the familiar words. No son of mine, his da had said often enough since he'd been home. And was it true? Kyle didn't feel as if he belonged in this family of drunkenness and drug dealing, but was that really what Da meant? Or had he actually been fathered by another man? Kyle turned slowly to face the wardrobe door with its rectangle of mirror. He lifted his head, considering the boy that stared back at him. Fit. He was certainly fit, he told himself appraisingly. Beneath the washed-out black T-shirt, he saw a muscular pair of shoulders that gave him the appearance of the man he might become, strong and ready to defend himself. Kyle's eyes stared at the face in the mirror. It wasn't a weak face, though the full lips and thick eyelashes were sort of girlish. They dragged him about being a cute wee boy in primary school, but he'd grown into his looks now. His skin was clear and fresh, not acne-ridden like Tam's had been all through his big brother's adolescence. The figure in the mirror was stroking his chin and he could feel the stubble, a testament to his burgeoning manhood. His forehead creased, leaving eyebrows like twin arcs above a pair of sea-green eyes as he came to the same decision as the boy in the mirror. One day, he thought, 
his jaw hardening. One day, Dad would come on to him and he'd give him back everything he deserved. This is, is that okay? Can you hear me? Uh, this is from Still, Still Midnight. Pat took a breath and against his own best counsel sauntered casually out of the dark up to the front door. He pressed the bell. Sorry, is it? A cosy three-toned chime rang out in the hallway and a moment later, behind the mottled glass panel, two shadows materialised. One far away down the hall, the other close, coming from the left, just inside the front door. The faraway figure had set his shoulders in a huff, spoke indistinctly, sounded annoyed, and the second figure answered him, drawling, insolent. She was close, had come from the living room to the left of the door. It was the hostile they had spotted from the van, definitely female. She was slim, dressed in jeans and a grey t-shirt, with long black hair loose down her back. Graceful as water, she reached for the handle and the door fell open. A puff of warmth billowed out to meet Pat's nose, the smell of toast. Pink carpets and walls. To his left was a small black telephone table between the living room door and another, and above it on the wall a cheap-looking black velvet clock ticked loudly, a picture on the back of it, a gold-lined drawing of a mosque or something. Pat mapped the room. Six doors leading off, packy music coming from a back room, so at least one other person in the house. He looked at the hostile who had answered the door. She wasn't obviously beautiful. Her nose was long and pointy and she had an angry red spot in her cheek. He could never explain then or otherwise why the sight of her struck him so, or why he froze gun limp by his side, drinking in the flawless S of black hair resting on her shoulder. Alicia looked back at him, quizzical, eyes snaking across his face as if she was trying to make sense of the black woolen canvas. And a strand of blue-black hair slipped softly from her shoulder, coming to rest across her small, apple-round breast. She was wearing Western clothes and didn't seem to have a brow on under a T-shirt, which was odd because she was definitely the man's daughter. She looked like him. And Pat always thought those old Asian guys had a firm hold over their daughters. Who the hell are you? called the man from the back of the hall. He was small, 60 or 70, had an Amish looking neat little curtain hanging of a beard and wore pale blue nylon pyjamas, perfectly ironed. Coming in here, his voice faded, the danger occurring to him, so late. Ironed pyjamas and warmth and toast, Pat began to salivate. He wanted to walk in and shed his jacket and stay, but a sharp shoulder hit him from behind, shoving him into the house. Eddie barged in, stumbling over the doormat and staggered sideways up the pink hall, his crazy crab dance watched by everyone until bandy-legged, he regained his balance. His balaclava had slipped off centre, blinding him until he tugged at it, remembered his gun raised it, seemed surprised at the sight of it in his hand. Watching from the other end of the hall, Pat could sense his embarrassment. Eddie took a deep breath, tipped his head back and shouted through the mouth of the balaclava, Bob! Bob! His entrance, manner and dress were so distracting that no one actually heard what he said. The pyjamaed man looked anxiously back at the door to see if anyone else was coming in. The girl next to Pat bristled. Fear settled like a smog in the hallway. 
Pat looked at the girl again. The colour had drained from her cheeks. Her eyes were wide, watchful of Eddie, looking out for her father. And Pat was struck again, felt his heart slow and the hairs on his skin rise as if reaching towards her. And she saw him look, his pale blue eyes pleading and wondering. Alicia was a teenager and therefore only interested in the world as it spoke about her. And she saw Pat like her, long for her to like him back. And despite her bewilderment and her terror, her frank, his frank admiration warmed her. Still, she was young and in the presence of her father and felt suddenly terribly embarrassed. And she dropped her head forward so that a curtain of black hair fell across her face and rolled a shy step back towards the living room door. The movement made Eddie jump. He pounced towards her, snatched her arm, yanked her back towards Pat. Don't fucking try. Get out here. Stay out here. Having thrown her off balance, he let go and skipped back down to the pyjamaed man, leaving Alicia bent over to the side, glaring at the arm where Eddie had dared to touch her. Ballsy as fuck. Pat smiled beneath his woolly mask. When she stood up straight, her face was an inch from Pat's chest and she looked up at him, her plump lips parting, her fear superseded for a moment by anger. And in that moment, when she was no longer terrified, Pat's wool-framed eyes asked her a wordless question. Alicia arched her back, stood tall, looked down her long nose and answered him with a slow, proud blink. They both smiled and looked away. The sight of the unfamiliar carpet brought back Pat back to his senses. He raised his heavy gun at the ceiling half-heartedly, as if he was kind of showing it to her. And Alicia smothered a panicky giggle. A sharp click drew every eye to a, doll, a door across the hall. It opened slowly and a big square man looked out into the hall. Bilal took after his uncles, not his wee daddy, and his hugeness was unexpected and alarming. Eddie screamed at him, are you Bob? No, said Bilal quietly. I'm not, uh, there's no one called Bob here, mate. He stepped out of the room, shutting the door behind him, but his hand stayed behind his back, holding the door firmly. Open that door, open that door. Bilal glanced at his feet. Uh, no, I won't, actually. At this, Alicia snorted, giving Pat an excuse to look back at her again. Eddie stepped forward, purposefully over to Bilal, pointing his gun at his nose. Move! And hypnotised by the gun barrel, the big man stepped back to his side. Eddie kicked the door in. The room was dimly lit and straight across from the door was an old-fashioned double divan bed, high with dark wood headboard, much marked. And sitting in the bed was a wild-haired, bloated woman, two fingers of her right hand scissored around a hugely swollen brown nipple. In her other hand, she cradled the bald head of a tiny baby. Eddie was staring at she stared at the gun barrel and clutched the baby to her breast, covering herself. Get out of here. Get out. Get out here. Bilal stepped between them. Careful with that, mate. Don't touch my gun. No one here touch my gun. Okay, okay, said Bilal, raising his, high, his hands high in surrender. No worries, no bother. You, Eddie shouted at the woman, get out here. Oh, but I've not to get up, she said. I could hemorrhage. Eddie glanced at Pat, saw him stealing a lingering look at Alicia's hair and screamed across the hall, Pat, lift your fucking gun. Everyone in the hall realised his mistake before Eddie did. He should never have said Pat's name. No one knew what to do except for Alicia. Addled with fear and the bold compliment of Pat's gaze, she was sure that the whole thing that would be okay, that coming in with a gun was somehow, somehow a benign misunderstanding, and she wanted it to stop. She looked at the side of Pat's head and smiled and reached her left hand forward to the woolen rim of his balaclava intending to whip it off with a cheerful ta-da and put an end to the awkwardness. Unexpected fingernails scratching the back of his neck shocked Pat into a spin. 
He hadn't meant to pull that trigger. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> Sorry, that, that felt as if it went on for hours and hours and hours, so I just skipped a bit. Sorry. Uh, nine minutes. Was it? Oh, was it? <laughs> I wasn't counting. <laughs> Thanks, Denise. Thanks both very much. Um, let's talk first of all about where these books came from. Alex, you mentioned obviously your school teaching background, but talk a bit about specifically the, the plot and the, the sort of motifs in this book. Um, it came to me when I was coming down from um, an event in Watersons and Newton Mearns and I was coming down this back road and I saw a young teenage boy and girl walking hand in hand and suddenly I had this idea for a book, I literally stopped the car, got out my notebook and started writing this bit about this young couple. There was something about the relationship between them, the expression in their faces that showed me there was something not quite right and that was the germ of the whole thing was a young couple. And it, it came from that, and of course, the young couple out of school, and the whole idea just came from that. I think sometimes you get this little moment that's like a little seed, and you plant it in your mind or, or your laptop or whatever, and it grows and it grows and it grows. And that's, that's where that started from. Right, did that happen with you in this particular case? Has it happened in the past? That has happened in the past, but this, this particular book came from a real case that happened in Glasgow. And uh, it's just the inciting incident really comes from it. Um, and uh, um, it was a really ordinary, I mean, the, the situation there is it's a very ordinary suburban area in Glasgow and there's a very sort of Glaswegian Muslim family who are gathering back at the house after Ramadan prayers and two nutcases break in. And I really wanted to write a sort of um, crime book that was more holistic about crime because I felt that I was always writing about one person, a protagonist or a victim or something. And I really wanted to write a books about crime that were um, it followed the um, the bad guys and the good guys and the solvers and the victims because I think this is so interesting all those different facets and um, and that particular inciting incident I just found that absolutely fascinating um, that uh, you know just the themes of it that you know um, uh, I mean I, I grew up a, a Catholic um, in a Scottish family and we were very aware of the fact that you could be held without. Um, being charged, that people were being tortured, that that you you know that you basically you, we used to say you know don't mention your religion because you can be arrested for carrying a potato and do you know what I mean don't don't see I mean I knew somebody called McGuinness and she couldn't go to Northern Ireland and um, and you just see it happening to a whole new generation and I just thought how interesting how alienating that is and like a lot of uh, Scottish and English Muslims we went back to Ireland looking for our identity and we were like didn't belong there at all and found it very strange and. Um, and I just thought, what an interesting scenario to have everybody looking for an identity in a book. And, um, and the gangsters, because that is a big identity for, you know, hard men. The gangsters in this are ex-bouncers who are deciding to move into badmanism, whatever. And, uh, um, and one of them's up for it and the other one's really just doing it because he's a very, very loyal person and he doesn't really have a very fixed identity. So. Um, that was kind of where it came from, was that one incident. I love the way you had the flashbacks to the father's um, youth and his identity. I thought that was, that was beautifully done. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> You've got to read the book. <laughs> um, the interesting phrase you used there, the inciting incident. Uh, and so where did you go from that inciting incident, uh, Alex, in terms of planning the novel and then working out, you know, did you concentrate on characters more than everything else or, or how did that work? Um, I think I started off with the characters. I think uh, my characters definitely tend to, to drive the plot along. Um, and 
I think I tried to get into the sort of understanding of young teenage people and there's one particular character in it who is a fantasist and a lot of young girls are fantasists and her fantasizing takes her into very dangerous territory um, and she, she goes to, she, she crosses a line between what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and in crossing this line she puts both herself and other people in great danger um, but it, it's not an unreasonable thing to, to do. Um, in schools you, you sometimes find that children do cross lines, they, they do cross these un, invisible boundaries. Um, in this case she's accusing a, a teacher of having raped her and of course immediately any, any kind of accusation like this is instant suspension for the teacher in question while there's a, an ongoing case and the ongoing case actually does involve the police from day one. Um, so this, this was one of the things that I, I wanted to do, explore and discover. Um, you know, when one person says X has happened, what actually is going to take place? Um, and at the same time, of course this is all happening in Maggie Lorimer's school, but at the same time her husband has got um, a missing toddler who's been snatched from outside her door. So I had the two things going in tandem. And I thought that was realistic because a police officer doesn't just have one case on at a time. Mm -hmm. You know, very often that they've got a lot of balls to juggle, mm -hmm. as it were. Um, and it was funny how I explored the two things and that they, they didn't impinge one on the other, just that Lorimer was the, the person who was involved in both cases. Is mm -hmm. a character for you when you come to planning or how does it work? Um, um, really, it really is character. I'm, I'm, there's no really crass way to say this, but sometimes you think something's going to happen and then you're working on the page and something else happens and um, even that's quite crass it right down but um, yeah I think you know if you're if you're trying to write to the character and make the characters believable um, I think a lot of people write very strict outlines and stick to them and um, and I think sometimes you can tell when people have done that because the characters do things that feel slightly hollow um, but if you do just write to the character it make, you know what I mean it makes um, uh, it makes it believable because tradition, sorry, Alice, traditionally plot was you know kind of the thing about crime writing wasn't it, it doesn't sound like plots that important to you to important from the point of view that you know that your reader wants to investigate with you. Um, I find plotting quite hard but I also find it very challenging yeah. and I always want to make sure that it is tight enough. I think you're walking this tightrope between what you know is happening um, but does your reader see through it mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, it's, it's quite difficult, mm -hmm. that's a difficult thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I don't think plot's that important anymore. I think we are so saturated with crime stories that the game of the reader, I mean, I think in your work, you do this, Paul, um, that the reader um, is, doesn't just want to play the, you know, oh, it was definitely the father game anymore because, you know, it's on five nights a week on telly, or hundreds of films, most people who watch or read crime, um, or watch a lot of crime, you know, they, they read so much, they're so informed by it, that that's not really enough to be satisfying anymore. And um, uh, um, and I think, you know, that you can do lots of other things. I don't think that's the answer that, that as a reader, I'm looking for. I mean, I'm quite thrilled when people write those quite kind of scatological endings where you have to talk to someone about it or actually think about it afterwards. It's not just, you know, an aha moment. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think, you know, 350 pages is a big investment 
why would anybody just wait? You know, if it is just about finding who did it, you would just turn to the last page. Save, <laughs> save yourself seven ninety nine. I think people want to know more about why motivation, understanding the characters, and as you saying, you know, where they all come from, mm -hmm. and looking at the, you know, the, the reasons why people do things and the interrelationships. I think people find that very satisfying to read. Woody Allen said about stand-up comedy, he said he used to write um, um, for Sid Caesar and he said he thought he could write all this comedy and just stand up and read it out because it was so funny. And he said he did that in clubs and he realised that that's not what people want from stand-up comedy. What they want to do is spend time in the company of the person that is doing the comedy. So that's why you can get character comics who you couldn't come out and say Billy Connolly told this joke but he's unbelievably funny and it's a great night and I think I think novel writing is the same I mean I think maybe you know it turns out it's this character might have been enough once but I don't think it's enough I think it's a, an invitation to spend quite a lot of time together it's, well, it's an interesting point that you raise about the you know the huge amount of, of crime shows on TV uh, crime uh, is accessible in all sorts of different media now the sort of comics and this kind of stuff as well I mean does that actually make the job of writing good crime novels harder do you think Alex? Um, I think it spoils TV for you when you you're uh, when you are a crime novelist because you you always know who done it from the very beginning. It spoils it for me because I think why wasn't my thing put on? They keep <laughs> buying rights to the bloody things. Why don't they fucking make them? Or if you find something that you see in terms, I wrote that. That was my ending. You know, somebody pinched it. <laughs> I think it does. I think readers are much more sophisticated than we give them credit for, and I really do. And I don't just mean book festival audiences. I mean all readers of that of that kind of narrative arc are much more sophisticated than we used to be, you know, and uh, you don't get, you know, um, uh, I mean, I think also things are very violent now and it's it's an un it's understood that it is part of the form, that it's not real violence and sometimes you meet people who don't engage with that kind of thing and they're really shocked when they find out what happens as a sort of plot twist in crime novels and horror books and horror films. Well, it's interesting you, you raised the question of violence because I, someone actually made that point from the, the floor in a, an event I shared a couple of days ago with another pair of Glaswegian crime, female crime writers <laughs> um, who shall remain, less, cause, remain nameless because I've forgotten who it was. No, no, you can, you can probably work out who it was. It was and it, and it, <laughs> it's you in disguise. It doesn't, it doesn't particularly matter who it was, but this particular uh, person in the audience said that she was quite um, problematised by the level of violence in, in crime fiction now and it actually put her off. I mean, what's your take on that, Alex? First? Um, I don't think you need to, to show explicitly a violent act. Um, I think you go back to people like Guy de Maupassant, who was expert in showing and suggesting a violent act and making it far, far, far more frightening. And I think that the suggesting of something rather than the explicitly spelling it out is more sophisticated and far more appealing to the reader. Um, I always stand up for violence, actually, because I don't. People aren't buying books about jewelry theft anymore, and readers. I don't want to read them as a reader. I don't want to see films about someone, you know, um, stealing raffle tickets. I, I'm quite, you know, I think people are interested in murder, and I think it gives us a prurient thrill, and I think we live in very, very peaceful times, and that's one of the reasons we're really interested in it. Um, because it's alien, you know, and um, it's interesting looking at the audience, the ages of, of crime writing, uh, uh, crime fiction readers. It's never people, you know, young guys between 18 and 23 who are the most likely to be beaten up walking home or, um, you know, I'm sure people in war zones like Darfur are not buying lots of crime novels and um, I think... Uh, I mean, I'm very interested in violence. I really like people like um, filmmakers like Beat Takeshi who, who do the aftermath of violence. 
he actually very rarely shows violence. He does the aftermath of violence, which is much more interesting. Because sometimes I read um, crime novels that are almost horror novels, and you know people are having their arms sewn onto their face and things like this. And I'm not terribly interested in that, and I'm not even very shocked by that. But I'm possibly quite brutalised because I've watched so many <laughs> violent movies. <laughs> um, let's look at something that is almost the first thing that strikes a reader when they walk into a, a bookshop or a potential book buyer, uh, which in this particular case, um, it's not very obvious, is the title. Mm -hmm. uh, Jackets, authors don't have a huge amount of input on, sometimes no input whatsoever. Sometimes even with titles that's the case, but tell us a bit about how you came to these titles and why and how that worked, uh, Denise. Well, my title originally was In the Still Suburban Midnight because publishers are always wanting a title with blood in it and they always want one with knives in it and stabbing and eye gouging but it always has to be two words so I thought make it a long one and make it sound as tranquil as you possibly can <laughs> and, uh, um, and uh, anyway so I had a very very busy year last year and my publishers were saying look we're going to keep the title still midnight because they'd sort of shorten it for the sake of the email so all the way through, I thought it was going to be called In the Still Suburban Midnight. And I actually, you know, we actually had a wee celebration. I said, they're going to keep that actual title. And it was because I hadn't read the email properly. Oh. So, um, uh, and Sanctum was originally called Up in the High Attic Room, which really scary, isn't it? It really makes you think of blood and guts and people being disemboweled. But I, that is my ambition is to have a crime novel published with a, an incredibly tranquil a long title. A long, tranquil, sort of lyrical title that makes the reader think, this looks like something about rivers with Griff Street Jones. And, oh my God! <laughs> You've broken my brain! Uh, Alex, Glasgow oh, oh, Kiss. Glasgow Kiss, well, I've already. talked about that, but what I think of next year's is it's nothing tranquil. Next year's is called Five Ways to Kill a Man. That's lovely. It's a quote from a poem, I've cheated. <laughs> but I've done that before. I've, I've quoted Norman McCaig's, and my first three books were quotes from Norman McCaig. Um, and uh, I, mean, I, I know a lot of other people do that. Val McDermott pinches T.S. Eliot for a lot of her titles. And uh, Ian goes for rock mu music, rock doesn't he? Rock and pop. Some sort of rock and pop rock and combo. Pop. Yeah. But still midnight. I, I think I prefer your original title. I, I, I think, think that would so. have been lovely. I think so. In let's, the still suburban let's midnight. Let's get non-crime writers, crime readers, to buy these things yeah. and mess up their heads. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's have a poll. How many people think still midnight is better than in the still suburban midnight? You know, I'm sitting here, but please don't <laughs> feel that that puts any pressure on you. No, you see, you agree with Denise, right? Yeah. Two well people. That was three people. <laughs> was three people, and it was a this and this. Be very wary of audience participation. <laughs> Um, when I started writing several years ago in the late 90s, um, there were very few Glasgow crime writers. Mm. Basically none. I mean, there was Michael Vanney who'd more or less given up even by then. And I suddenly, there are lots. Um, explain, please. Or it's, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I'm the Scottish chapter convener for Crime Writers Association. We have five new Scottish crime writers in the last three months. It's just incredible. There just seems to be an upsurge. Um, of course, Glasgow is the, the knife capital of the world, isn't it? Poor old Glasgow. We started that. Um, we did. Do you know, there's one of my friends is out there. She and I started our teacher training together. And the first school we went into, the headmaster took us into his study, took us round to the other side of his desk and opened the drawer. And his drawer was full of knives. I mean, this is way, 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 way back Headmaster in the... shouldn't be stabbing people no. at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was trying to make us frightened. But I mean... It's true, it's always had this reputation, uh, a very violent city. 
And, I think uh, it's great because we're all doing different things. Yeah. You know, we're all covering different areas, and um, um, uh, I, I mean, there can't be enough as far as I'm concerned. I think it's it's fantastic, and I think you know a lot of people would read me and think I don't recognise my city in that, and then read someone else and say that I do recognise. But Glasgow uh, has so many faces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, and to expand the question slightly, there's also the whole issue of kind of the Scottish crime writing scene, which you've already referred to, the, um, the, the sort of tartan noir thing. Um, there are rather a lot of us now. I mean, is, is that solely a good thing, or do you feel perhaps you know sort of slightly worried by the people coming up behind you? Well, I, think I, I do feel worried by the people coming <laughs> up. Behind Thought you might. Yeah. 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 Every every writer does. You know, I think they should just stop at me actually. Well. You're, you're, you're saying that, but I remember you were very generous. This one was, well, Val McDermott was the queen of crime, and then you were the crown princess. And I always said, well, I was the lady in waiting. And she came along to my first book launch and gave me a bunch of roses. She said, you're not waiting anymore, you've arrived. <laughs> See, I? So she, she has this big persona has been, you know, which is dead nice Do and I? <laughs> I'm just going to ask one more question, and then we'll ask uh, for the audience to participate. Um, and the question is, yeah, what are you doing next? I mean, you've already mentioned, Alice, your, uh, your title. Tell us a bit more about that. Uh, if you five want. Ways to Kill a Man came to me all of a sudden uh, when I was at the Harrogate Festival a couple of years ago. And uh, quite often ideas come to you when you're falling asleep. And this, this came to me falling asleep. And I thought, what if um, somebody actually just wanted to kill to see what it felt like? And I thought, let's get inside the psyche of somebody like that. And that's, that's where it came from. And it sort of simmered away. And I was busy writing other things. So this was sort of simmering away in the background when I wasn't even thinking about it. And I came to write it, and it just grew arms and legs. It's, it's got an awful lot of really nasty deaths in it. Oh, you, you were the one who said the violence didn't have to be. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Denise? Um, actually, um, I, haven't start, I haven't got a title yet, but um, it came from a nightmare. Um, I live in a very beautiful bit of Glasgow. You won't believe that because you're from Edinburgh, but there are very, very beautiful <laughs> bits of Glasgow. And, uh, um, and it's very up and coming. And um, uh, half the people who live there are tremendously posh. And half the people who live there are drugs barons. And um, uh, the nicest neighbour that we have is a very famous drugs baron. He's actually been in the Sunday Mail and stopped this evil man. Um, it's actually a verb, stop this evil man. Yeah. And um, uh, very, very nice man, has very, very nice children. And I woke up one morning and had this nightmare that in 20 years' time I was quite frail and uh, I went into the living room and um, uh, his, one of his kids, he doesn't even have any children, but one of his kids was standing in the living room and, I said, and he took money out of my purse and I said, put that money back, I know your dad, which is a very famous Glasgow thing, <laughs> I know your dad, stop stabbing me, I know your dad. Um, and I said, stop taking, I said, put that money back, I know your dad. And he just kept looking at me and I knew he was going to kill me. That's why he didn't care that I was going to tell his dad. And I, and I woke up and um, that's wow. the story. Oh, great. So that's the start of it. And then I started, and I was reading a lot about Madoff and um, anybody following the Madoff case? It turns out there's a book out this week and um, the, all the talk about Madoff has been how devoted he and his wife are to each other and how she must have known. And it turns out he's been having an affair for 20 years, which is <laughs> just, if, you, if you've been following the case, it's just mesmerizing. It's such a betrayal. And, and you know, he is just a traitor to everybody. And the, the, you know, the, the, the saving grace about the man was always that he was faithful to this wife that he met when he was 14 and he's been having an affair. And um, so anyway, that's all in there as well. So but it's just, anyway. 
Everyone who knows Madoff seems to have been walking around with blinkers. I mean, they didn't notice that he was Greedy doing blinkers. All this stuff. I'd, have, yeah. I'd have fallen for it, you know? Somebody keeps giving you money year after year and they seem quite aloof and they're reluctant to take your money. It's genius <laughs> grift, it really is. <laughs> okay, thanks very much. Uh, we've got the lights up already, I think. Um, we invite questions now from the floor. You've put them off, Denise, now they're frightened. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> There's a lady here in the most hidden... Keep your hand up so she can see you. Yeah, right. Thanks. Pass the parcel. What do I do with it? Yeah, just, just hold it. Just talk it. Okay. Yeah, you're right. um, as close as possible. It's a question for Denise, but before that, there are three books that I've read that so disturbed me, none of them, not yours, that I threw them out. And I think that's my response to something when the violence I find so disturbing. But it's only been three out of thousands. You don't remember which three they were out of interest? I do, actually, but I'm not going to You want to tell us? <laughs> no, you it's tell not us. easy. Mm. <laughs> uh, no, throwing them out, I got rid of them. Uh, the question for you is, uh, what happened to Paddy Meehan? Paddy Meehan, um, the, uh, the, the deal originally with the publishers was I was going to write one Paddy Meehan and one standalone. And actually, I got so into it, I wrote three in a row. So that's, this is the book that should have been between Paddy Meehan 1 and Paddy Meehan 2. So um, I, I am coming back to Paddy Meehan. There's another two Paddy Meehan books and, uh, and I now have four pads full of things that happened to her. So the next <laughs> book's going to be about that wise. But I, I wasn't really supposed to, it was going to be a, a you know, kind of work a day series book and I didn't really expect to love her that much. But I got really, really into it and that's why there were three in a row. But they were never really supposed to be three in a row for Paddy. Just and that's why there were time spaces, so I didn't have to be, so I didn't have to worry about continuity. That was the whole point of the time lapses, because when I wrote the first Paddy, I was pregnant, and I thought, right, how can I carry on having a career? Because usually, what happens to women writers is they get pregnant, and they say, my life isn't going to change one iota, and then you never hear of them again. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I've got this massive mortgage. How am I going to keep living in this big house that I love? And uh, without becoming a drugs baron, and uh, and I thought, well, you know, if I have that, so I don't have to keep file notes and all that kind of thing, and people don't keep writing to me saying she didn't have that hat on. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you know, and um, uh, so anyway, but I just got really, really into her, and just um, so Paddy will return for another two books. Yeah, I'm really into her. Yeah, well, is that right? Oh, that's lovely. Good. Just remind us of the three titles of those books for those. Who You're on me, Paul. I don't know. <laughs> um, the Dead Hour was one of them, wasn't the it? The Dead Hour was one of them, definitely. <laughs> ah, gotcha! <laughs> the Field of Blood, The Dead Hour and The Last Breath. Well done. Okay, would someone else like to join the debate? Otherwise I'm going to have to go to my second division. Ah, here's a lady here. Where's the mic? All right. When you, fight, fight, when you, when you get a plot, uh, do you visualise the end of the book? Do you sort of have a whole sort of, before you get down to writing it, do you sort of visualise how it's all going to sort of work Yeah, I, I usually know how things are going to end. Um, having said that, uh, you are in charge and things n aren't necessarily set in stone, but I, I do have a, a picture in my head of how things are going to end. Yeah. Do you? Um, I do sometimes, but um, uh, it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes it's more fun to write, in a, write a different ending, but I usually have some big scenes that I can visualise and, uh, and I sort of 
write to them, and then and then those are the there's a Bulgakov book called White is it, it's not White it's Black Snow, and it's about a writer who gets a really bad fever, and in his fever he has to write a play. He sees a box rising up, spinning round, and one side of it falls down, and there are players and horses on the stage, and he just writes down what happens. And I ha every in every book I have three or four scenes like that where I can imagine everything happening and how it smells and what it looks like, and the rest of it's like swimming through treacle. Yeah. <laughs> Did so I the endings, when the ending's one of those scenes, that's fantastic, that's lovely. Did I hear the phrase, the characters take over? The dread phrase, the characters take over, has that ever happened to you? Oh, yeah, and it, it's, it's really strange. Uh, I used to hear people say this from platforms, I think, yeah, yeah, it sounds dead pretentious, but it does actually happen. Um, my third book, Shadows of Sounds, it's set in the Glasgow Royal Concert Hall. I had uh, this tiny little cameo part for... Um, a character who's a, a wee druggie with his, his wee polystyrene cup outside the concert hall. I thought, right, you're a little minor character. Like, no missus, no missus. And he, he elbowed his way to the front. He became a major character in that book. So much so that I was actually at a library in Sunderland last year and uh, the lady said, are you going to bring Flynn back into another book? And below me is they not get into five ways to kill a man. <laughs> so, aye, they take over. <laughs> Is that uh, you, Denise? No, I am their god, I decide. And if they get too uppity, I'm like, Matt, that's, that's kill them. That's exactly what Ian Banks said yesterday. Is it? Yeah, there's a lady here. Just hearing you talking there about the characters and, and, and visualising things, and you were also talking earlier about um, wondering when you're going to get on the TV, do you ever visualise sort of actors playing them? Um, do you know, the rights to Garnet Hill were sold so long ago and have been sold to so many different people that, um, that the people that I originally cast in my fantasy cast are now far too old. In fact, <laughs> several of them have retired, so that's how long ago it was. And um, so I've slightly given it up. And I never, it's not actors I see because, you know, actors are too beautiful, nearly always too good looking and not attractive enough. That's, I've said it. I'm sorry if there are any actors here. I doubt it's the Edinburgh Festival, but um, uh, you know when you watch Antiques Roadshow and you see real people on television and it looks like a freak show? That's what I would really like. <laughs> I, it's great. I love it. Um, you know, and women wearing makeup that they did in the 70s and they still wear their makeup like that. That's the sort of thing I would like to see. My, and to be honest, even no matter what gets made, I know I'm going to be disappointed because um, I'm a big, big fan of um, George Gross and Otto Dix. I don't know if anyone knows German Expressionist painters, but they did all these um, um, hyper-real kind of paintings of people, and it's mostly of like Berlin street scenes. That I would really like it to be animated by Otto Dix. If you D-I-X, look it up on the internet, and uh, you'll. Um, have a titter to yourself, but you know, I once saw. I love the Antiques Roadshow. I once saw a woman sitting in the background like this all the way through, and she was carrying a, a cardboard box, and it said "Urgent Vaccines" on it, and she was there <laughs> for the whole show. <laughs> and people's crazy here and all that, and you know, I love that, and I wish real people were on TV more, and I would love to make a film with cast with real people and say to them, "Come in in your own clothes," because it's so much more visually interesting. I'll leave you my card. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Excellent. You're actually a wee bit too good looking. Um, it would have to be me and Omantis, but we all look identical apart from the bifocals, so it might be confusing. Just as the mic's going towards the gentleman at the back eyelets, have you had any daydreams or night dreams about stars? Oh, daydreams all the time, yes. Yeah. Somebody please take an option in my books. <laughs> that would be nice, yeah. It would be right. lovely. Sorry. I was just going to ask about the Glaswegian dialogue. Does that present you any technical problems, and do you get emails from people who say, I like the story, but I find it really difficult reading the dialogue or whatever. No, just my, my London publisher, um, sometimes he's not very sure of some of the, the words, you know, what does this mean? So a few years ago, I sent him some of these tea towels, you know, the tea towels <laughs> with, <laughs> with, with the Scottish words and what they actually mean. So we, I'm trying to educate them down there. But I mean, the, the one, uh, Chris Brookmeyer, he, he's with the same publishing house as I am, and he gets away with total murder. <laughs> I mean, the, no, if he can get away with it, I can get away with it. I, I think the dialect's important, though, because it yeah. really it, it centres your your whole place. You know, you've got the, the sound. Sound's awfully important, and if you can get the sound of somebody's voice in their head, in the reader's head, I think that that's it's part of the setting. It's part of the whole makeup of it. It's really, really important. And it's important for rhythm as well. Yeah. The rhythm of the way people That's speak right, and stuff speech. like that. Yeah. But um, in the States, we always have to translate every book for an American audience. And, um, and quite often I get letters from people saying, why did you change that? I came from, you know, Aberfoyle millions of years ago and I was looking for some Glasgow pastor and all that. And um, uh, but actually, you know, I'm going outside to smoke a fag was a phrase that occurred a lot in the Garnet Hill books. And in America, that has a very different meaning. <laughs> and things like that, do you know what I mean? That would fundamentally change the way people, you know. And, um, you know, someone slipping off her pants and things like that. Um, you know, that's not that sexy in America, because in America that's that. And, um, and stuff you, you, like you can't have a wee girl go into a shop to buy rubbers, no. No, exactly, exactly. There's loads and loads of words that don't translate. And, uh, and, and words that I didn't realise were Scottish words. Oxter is not a word that anyone else understands apart from us. And, uh, you know, even, like, I often get grammatical um, um, things that say this is bad grammar and the line edit. And actually, it's good grammar up here. And I, and I started learning Gaelic and found out that a lot of our grammatical constructions come from Gaelic. Of course, I can't think of any now. But use, <laughs> right? You, there's, there's the plural and the singular. And in Gaelic, you would use the plural for a number of people. You would say use or, do you know what I mean? Just certain um, sentence structures. Oh, yeah. How are you yourself? Uh -huh. That is directly from Gaelic. And, and you would never use that anywhere else. And I don't think we kind of realise how seeped into the language that is, you know? Very good, very technical. <laughs> would anyone else like to chat uh, with the lady at the front here? We'll keep it alive, we'll come to you afterwards, yeah. Keep your hand, or put your hand up now so she can see it. Well done. Thank you, it's just a quick question for Denise. Maybe a bit closer, actually. Closer? Yeah, yeah. Um, are you still doing graphic novels? I actually have one that's about to come out, and it's been about to come out for about three years, so I feel a bit foolish saying that. Um, um, it's a, a graphic novel, it's called A Sickness in the Family, and it's all about house prices. Why don't they bring it out? It's not going to be relevant <laughs> really, really soon. And um, uh, yeah, so I'm st I am still doing that, and, uh, and I'm going to do more, but it's just finding the time. And to be honest, I really love comics, I call them like I call crime novels detective novels. If I meet someone that I don't really like and I want them to leave me alone, I always say I write comics. <laughs> Especially it's something like this and then they're like that. And if they try to be kind to you, they'll say, you mean graphic novels? And I say, no, it's comics I write. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, so I have written another one and that should come out quite soon, but it's really fascinating form. 
Yeah. Do you, like do you like comics? Yeah. I, I wrote comics when I was a wee girl. Did you? Yeah, I used to illustrate them in all the bubbles and speak. No, I, did you? I was, oh, I, so, so did Dean Rankin when he was a wee boy. He used to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he's just written one. Yeah, he's just written one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's something about it. Yeah. The visualisation. Mm -hmm. Hi, Denise, there was a question about um, Sanctum. The, the books at either side of Sanctum have got very likeable characters that you know they have flaws but it's much easier to accept that they're human in that way but in sanctum the characters aren't terribly likable although they're interesting did was that a deliberate ploy to shake up your readers or yeah, yeah. it was yeah. Um, and actually uh, you know a lot of people say they don't like lackey and actually really disappointed and am i very like maureen i'm most like lackey actually i'm most like the self-obsessed narcissistic character who's just thinking about sweets all the time <laughs> and never seems to get out of the house but when i after i wrote garnet hill there was a very emotive narrative about very worthy heavy things it was on the third person and i wanted to write a first person narrative about a man and there are there are a lot of people who like sanctum and don't like any of my other books but I think, you know, if you're moving on, and I see this in your work and in your work, if, I think if your work is moving on, you should lose your audience every so often because it means you're not just churning out the same book. And uh, that's, you know, it's a business, you know, and that's what the business wants you to do. And often that's what readers want you to do is write the same book over and over again. Feisty heroine beats up the bad guys. And, you know, and I think it's really important if you're keeping things fresh to keep moving on. I love Lachie. I really love the fact that he's at his wife's trial and he's thinking about how he looks. Who's not done that at a funeral? You know what I mean? Me. <laughs> Come on, we've all done it. <laughs> I like this hat. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Someone else died. <laughs> Check me. <laughs> Alex, what do you think about it? I mean, have you written really... Obviously, with the crime writing, it's easy because you, you have nasty characters, you have baddies, so... But writing a baddie is a goodie, so to speak. Have you done that? But you make them very full, I think. Uh, writing a baddie is a, a goodie. Um, I think sometimes you don't know that somebody is going to be the perpetrator of a certain crime because, well, it's, it's like the wee girl in the Adams family said when she went out at Halloween, do you remember that? She was, her nanny said, you're not dressed up. She said, yes, I am. I'm going out as a psychopath. They just look like ordinary people. And I think, <laughs> I think that's one of the things you've got to do is to sort of think of, of the, the perpetrator as seemingly an ordinary person and this is what we all love it's the appearance and reality i think we're all hooked on appearance and reality mm -hmm. yeah and, and we see something and we know it's not exactly what you think it is and we, we want to delve around the back of it and i think that's what it's all about mm -hmm. and it's very exciting yeah. Yeah. appearance and reality it's very platonic as well you did philosophy at university long time ago <laughs> crime writers are very intellectual we've got time for <laughs> one more question Someone else like to jump in, ask about Aristotle, perhaps, or <laughs> Descartes. Yeah, well done. Yeah. There's a person here. Right in the politics, Aristotle talks about uh, <laughs> practical knowledge, and to my mind, the detective really proves how there's the rational side, and how we apply ethics in extreme situations of everyday life. Do you care to comment? Yeah, great question, actually. I th I th yeah, I think it's true. I think one of the things um, that you have, or at least I have in my, my stories, is a kind of ethical compassion, um, a morality that the, the readers will recognise. Um, and you, you know there are shades of grey, but at the same time, there is a, a path down which the protagonist must go. When DCI Lorimer 
he may have lots of flaws, but he is a straight guy. He, he knows what he's, he's after. He's after finding out what the truth is about something. And he goes that bit further because he really cares. He's got a compassion for the victim and, and the other victims. Um, and I, I, think, I think he's that kind of a person. He cares about life and death and, and big issues. Um, I think that's a brilliant question. Alan Moore said that comics are the new morality plays, that that's where we play out these ethical conundrums through a narrative form. And I think crime writing should steal that because I think that really is what a lot of crime fiction does. Not all of it, um, but I think that is the core of what the crime story is engaged with, is trying to get the reader to consider situations out with the norm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, but actually, we should ask you about this because you're probably sitting there chewing your tongue and. Um, I'm not. I'm just. Are you not? No. I'm just winding up. Right, I'm okay. about to wind up. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Then you're, you're not barely can, listening. Can, I was listening. I was listening. I'm just amazed that when I asked someone to ask a question about Aristotle, they did. <laughs> 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 it's never happened before. I think that deserves a round of applause. That question. Yeah, oh, that's yay! Uh, and which, he'll be signing after. <laughs> on which point, I'm very glad that, um, as Alex just said, there are shades of grey in her fiction because there'd have to be really, wouldn't there? Um, and on that point, uh, I will remind you that there will be a signing uh, in the main bookshop. We will go there first if you could hold back on the stampede so we get out first. That would be appreciated. Uh, and all that it remains for me to do is thank very much Alex Grey and Denise Miner. Thanks very much.